perfect. Tyler doesn't have his whistle. He lost it in the move. But uh, Tyler, you re- uh, Ryan, you ready? Uh, I'll blow it if you need. If you wow, need. Wow, you got a whistle. You got a whistle. Let's do it. Let's do it. You definitely have to blow it. You were the first guest that has a whistle with you. I love it, Tyler. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Ryan's right. got a whistle. Let's go back in Arkansas. You look happier. You look like you're smiling a little bit more. Time out, wow. Tyler. Who are we taking the time out with today? Well, Kevin, it's been a while, brother. Good to see you, man. And uh, ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, we have Ryan Carrier, the the wonderful Wolverine, the executive director at For Humanity. And uh, Ryan, thanks for being on the show. And I just wanted to kick this off, you know, as a gentleman's game here. Who the heck wins in an arm wrestling contest? Chris Weber or Jawan Howard? Jawan Howard. He plays dirtier. <laughs> wow okay. yeah no for sure he, he he knows all the street moves he he's got you know he one of the great things that he always had down in the post is he had the elbow and he tuck it around he he knew how he knew how to do it yeah. Weber was just, it. i think that's a hook. yeah exactly and hook he, usually but yeah <laughs> yeah weber was pure athleticism you know he's the kind of guy who's stuck in the in the mosh pit underneath and he can just elevate over everybody and just dunk over them but uh, I think Juwan wins because he's got the dirty, the dirty street moves. Well, we, uh, Tyler brought up the Fab Five, but uh, you did go to Michigan at a very interesting time for Michigan sports. They were very healthy back then. What was your most was, found memory that you have from like any sporting event that you attended during your time at Michigan? Is there a game? Is there a moment in a game that you remember and you can never forget? And it's funny, it's in the um, in the Fab Five, uh, I think it's 30 for 30 or the docu-series or whatever it was. Um, and actually, if if you slow it down and pause it, you can see me in the crowd at this moment that I'm about to reference, oh which is, it was, it was the um, fall, December of 1991, and it was our first game against Duke. And in that game, we came from behind, we tied it, and it went to overtime. And this was basically the first time the Fab Five was playing together as the Fab Five. They had played previous games, but this was they they were still on their way to all being the starters for that season. And this was their coming out party. And the crowd was beside itself. I was beside myself. It was just amazing. And, and the funny thing is, is about this, we still lost the game. But the it was so exciting to see the potential of of uh, these five freshmen and come together with their team. People forget the 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 amazing components of that team besides the Fab Five that made them a great team for for really years um, as they as they moved through class. And so this was that was the most exciting sort of single sports moment is their coming out party. It was unbelievable still still gives me chills talking about it today i love did you even have a sense though at that age that you were witnessing something so special that would be talked about in uh, movies or or series like you talked about 30 for 30 would would be done on that team like did you feel it in that moment at all there was no sense of the cultural impact um there was a sense of the uniqueness that that's for sure i mean it was it was too obvious that we had these five freshmen that we had these you know, the, the the quality of the class that came together in terms of McDonald's All-Americans at the time. Um, so we had that sense of uniqueness, but we didn't have the grand sense of, you know, kind of the big picture and their impact on, on basketball in general, really, and culture for that matter. 
That's so cool. That is awesome, man. Well, Ryan, thanks for sharing that with us. You can tell we're, uh, you know, I'm a nineties guy, you know, my hogs wanted all in 94. And as soon as I saw your, your resume over here on LinkedIn, I said, I got to ask this guy about the nineties, man. We won uh, in 98. Was, Kentucky was, got one in 98. <laughs> we had one in 98 down in San Antonio. Yeah. There you go. Well, well, Ryan, I was, I, I see that you, you know, you've been a director of VP director, you know, C, CIO, investment officer, founder of, of many, many sorts, man. looks like you've been busy for the past, past <laughs> while. Um, very successful. It looks like here, but I wanted to ask you who, who was Ryan Carrier before you stepped in at Ann Arbor? Where, where did you get these skill sets? And then can you kind of enlighten us on who you were before, you know, the, the U of M was yeah. uh, put on your chest? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I was, uh, an upstate New York kid who had no clue about the world. Um, I would describe myself as crude. And so going to the university of Michigan, uh, let me actually, let me put the context for crude. I didn't swear. And, and, and the group of friends that I was around, we didn't swear. We were all kids of IBMers, grew up in upstate New York, <laughs> and, it, 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 this, it, and it created this culture. This, there was a puritanical nature to it. Where I grew up was very safe and very, and, and it was just an amazing place to grow up, but it wasn't the real world, right? And so going to Michigan, it was actually a very meaningful change for me because all of that, that safety was immediately, immediately went away, but not necessarily because it was unsafe. It was just the scope of the world opened up, different cultures, different music. I listened to very kind of normal 80s pop kind of stuff. And almost instantly, I was doing things like Harry Connick and classic rock. And it just expanded my scope very quickly and was very important uh, formatively for how I began to approach the world and realize the difference in perspectives and this is only in an American lens. And then when I joined the World Bank in 1997, um, within my first week of, of joining there, I did an around the world trip. In, wow. in 10, 10 days, I went around the world and just exploding my perspective and, and understanding people of, of diverse sort of uh, inputs and diverse ways of thinking. And so, you know, having traveled I, for, for vacation, uh, both after college and before college, I had driven across North America twice. So I've seen a lot of this country, but I'd never left North America. And then joining the World Bank, within four years, I had done 55 different countries. And by 2005, I had four and a half million air miles. Wow. And it's just an entirely different formative experience when you when you have the opportunity to to visit many many different places, some uh, equally as developed but different perspectives, and some much less developed and and you know more poverty stricken, and those the challenges that come with that. Did you? Uh, it's funny you bring this up because uh, I went on a family vacation going back three years three years ago. Now we were talking to a um, Australian couple, and if anybody knows Australians, they do travel just like Canadians. They travel a lot. Um, actually it's a couple of us from Canada. I take that back. Um, and what they had shared, I was just asking, Hey, general population of, of Canada and how many passports and almost a large majority, I would say about 95% of their population have passports. Um, and then I started digging into the United States, um, in the U S we got what 330 on some odd million people, 
Um, and there's 25 million people with passports, give or take. So to yep. your point, that perspective that America is the greatest company or, or country, excuse me, without having a different perspective, you can really start to see why you believe certain things if you never challenge your perspective. So I had a similar evolution myself. I was in public or Catholic school my whole life. And I loved how you defined it as safety. And I think safety sometimes um, is a privilege because it gives us the opportunity and the space to learn. Um, what was one of the biggest takeaways? I mean, you said you were shrewd or crude, but like, what did you, what did you realize growing up in that figurative bubble? What did you have to change personally in order to create the safe space to learn from others' perspectives and insights? I think it, I think there's a confidence. Um, so so I would I would almost describe what I came out of just my high school and growing up. I had a confidence, but it was a bit of a false confidence. Um, and but the confidence gave me the comfort to allow others to challenge me or to, to suggest that I might not have enough perspective or to say, wait a minute, you think this way, but we think this way and for these reasons. Um, if you don't have a confidence, you might not be able to take those things, yeah. right? You might recoil from them and step away rather than say, look, I still have value as a person, even if I'm wrong, yeah. or even if I have a perspective that's, you know, that's very, very specific and doesn't take in the grand scheme. And so having the confidence of quite honestly, I think that's been critical in who I am today hmm. and the organization that I created in 2016 for humanity. Um, that's really what we're all about is, is, is I will confidently lead us forward in how we examine AI and these risks. But I also say to people, look, I'm putting forward some ideas. That's to get you talking. Yeah. That's to get you thinking and reacting. But then you also have to have the humility that says, you know, those are just ideas from your perspective here, yeah. here, listen and hear to what other people say to then craft what is best for humanity. This isn't for Ryan. This yeah. isn't for upstate New Yorkers who grew up with, with parents who were IBMers. <laughs> this isn't North Americans. OK, this is for humanity. This is what is the perspective of people from a Brazilian flavella from rural farmers uh, in, in the Midwest, from, from uh, you know, Norwegians and Swedes, from Chinese, from oppressed Russians. Like all those people are for humanity and we have to try to consider what we can do that's best for all people groups. And that, that's a big challenge. It's a huge challenge, but I love gaining the perspectives from multiple resources closest to the problem to help solve and find the solution for humanity. And I think humanity is, is as basic as it gets. Most organizations have challenges related to their people because they are getting away from humanity, right? And they're almost trying to turn employees into robots that just show up on time, do what they're told, and here's a task, and here's how much time you have to do it, and this is my expectation as far as output goes. And it's kind of leading an interesting conversation because AI um, was a formidable, something that we've talked about, and frankly, some people use every day without even knowing that they're using it in some cases. But now it became publicly available, getting it into the hands of those farmers, of me, of a Tyler, right? And really uh, a giant science project is what I've been referring to it as, or a social experiment of sorts, because yeah. there really wasn't any rules. And when there's no rules, then people will create their own rules and it brings inherent risk. 
when you saw chat GPT first come out, what was the initial thoughts that you had? Because you had already kind of been down this path before this science became publicly available to everybody else. What are your, what were your initial thoughts and your initial reactions? Well, your, your characterization of a, of a sort of giant public uh, lab is exactly correct. Um, and that gives me concern. Yeah. Uh, but it's also the nature of, of our mission. So let me, let me just kind of say out loud Please. what the mission is, which is to examine and analyze downside risk of AI, algorithmic, and autonomous systems. That's the scope of what we do. But we're only specifically looking at downside. This comes from my financial background where you have to take upside risk to get any sort of benefit. We like that. We encourage that. We know risk has to be taken. So that's cool. Okay. We are only going to examine the downside risk mm -hmm. because once we examine and analyze that, we want to engage in risk mitigations. How do we yeah. limit these downside risks? Yeah. And the theory is very, uh, very specific, which is if we can limit the downside risk of all of these tools then we maximize the benefit from these tools for humanity. And thus where this overly ambitious name came from. If you want to think of what for humanity is, it's we're not for machines. We're not opposed to machines. We take technology where it is, but we want to ensure that humanity maximizes its benefit and its well-being vis-a-vis these tools and not that they take over what humans are. So in, in starting this, uh, this nonprofit public charity in 2016, that was the mission, but I'll be very candid with you. There was no plan and there was no funding. It was simply this mission statement and, and this, this, what can, can I do about it? And it was just me at the time. Wow. Um, I had just completed a 25 year finance career. Uh, one of the reasons that I had that time is I, I, I ran a hedge fund for eight years. Wow. But it was something that I survived, but didn't thrive at. Yeah. And the reason I share that openly with people is for two reasons. Number one, I sit on a chair and not stacks of cash. Okay. When you survive a hedge fund, you didn't thrive. But also when you survive a hedge fund, it means you have to close it. And closing it is a duty that I had to engage in, but it's not a full-time job. So here I am closing this. I've got time on my hands. I now have two boys who are four and six years old. And I built AI to help manage money in this hedge fund. So I had great familiarity with AI in 2016. And here's what happened. With that time on my hand, I kind of looked at that trajectory that we were headed on, that path. And if you remember back, we, we were having problems with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and yep. the elections and how they were being influenced, social media's impact on the world. So I kind of looked at that trajectory headed out in the future for my, for my boys. And I don't mind sharing with you and the audience. I got scared. Mm -hmm. so scared that I started a nonprofit public charity with no money and no plan. <laughs> right? that's, that's how scared I was. And so I spent a lot of time writing and kind of exploring future of work, technological unemployment, rights and freedoms in the fourth industrial revolution, data, what should we do about data? Should we own it ourselves, which is not the current business model today? And even things like transhumanism. And if you and your audience don't know what transhumanism is, it means when we begin to put machines in our bodies. Okay, that barrier of our skin and our body as we begin to put machines. And by the way, people will, many people will. You hear about biohacking and all this, all these, these conversations about how I'm going to live forever and how to make myself smarter and more healthy and so on. 
people will do this and we believe they have a right to do it. But I would also submit to you that this will cause an enormous schism in our species between the purely human and the transhuman, and we're not well equipped to deal with it. Now, that's a whole other conversation and it's going to play out over 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. We have to focus in on what we can do today. And that's where we focus on independent audit of AI systems. That's our primary work. But let me pass it back to you before I just, because I could go for days once we start talking about this. So, <laughs> you know, ask questions it. around that. And let's see let's see where the journey takes us. I love it. So you said that we're not able to handle that. Um, how would we ever be able to handle that, in, in your opinion, in your eyes? Um, okay, so, so I have to express where the problem comes in. Okay. So uh, I think both of you said you have kids. Um, is that right? Okay. Yep, yeah. So picture this, you're about to send your kids off to school, good schools, you're going to pay four or $500,000 for the privilege minimum, right? And you find out that half of the class already has a brain implant that allows them to download their studies immediately. And your child does not have this brain implant, but you're about to spend all this money to have your child go compete with these persons at university. The peer pressure of that is enormous. Mm -hmm. But also I, I submit to you that, that from without the body using tools versus putting tools into my body is a significant enough barrier for people that many humans will choose never to do it. And so now what we have is, is human and what I'm gonna call superhuman. Now you might not fully appreciate what superhuman is, but let me tell you about something that's already happening today. There are companies in, in uh, Sweden who they're putting a, a chip, an RFID chip into your hand, okay? And when you do that, they have a big party. It's huge, peer pressure. it's really, <laughs> kind of, really kind of gross to be honest. But so when you make this choice, now what does this chip allow you to be superhuman in? It allows you to be superhuman and never forgetting your keys or always remembering your wallet because it's right there, right? So it's a it's like a gateway drug yeah. to the superhumanness. And I'll give you a different example. Professor Hugh Hare, who is an MIT uh, roboticist, he also is a mountain climber, climbed Mount Washington, got stuck, lost both of his legs below his knees. Through funding and grants and the work he, the work he does in robotics and cybernetics, he replaced his knee, his legs from the knees down, fully controlled by his brain, fully wired in and, and true cybernetics. So Hugh Hare, and, and by the way, anything that we do that takes someone who's subhuman, and I don't mean that negatively about yeah. them, right? They have, they have less than human um, attribute in some way. It could be eyesight, could be legs, mobility, whatever it is. Anytime we can bring that person back to a human level, that's a miracle. We want to celebrate that. Yeah. Here's the problem. Hugh Hare will stand in front of audiences and he'll basically say things like, and I hope you have the chance to have cybernetic legs yourself. Why? Because his legs are superhuman. Yeah. Elon Musk working on brain, brain implants and brain, uh, brain, computer brain interfaces. That is superhumanness and maybe downloading things or remembering things. Okay. So we begin to basically make superhumans and just humans. Now, if you're an employer, who do you employ? Superhumans. You can employ <laughs> superhumans every time. 
yeah. right? Because all you care about is profitability. You want productivity from 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 you know from your employees. So now we have this divide, mm -hmm. and it's it's irreconcilable. Mm -hmm. And so, how do we support the well-being of the minority, or it could be a majority, but they're basically an oppressed group because they are only human, and suddenly that's a shortcoming. Yeah, you can see where the competitive nature of hu the human species is like, I want more toys. I want more toys. I want more toys in my body. And they're becoming super, 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 and more superhuman. And how they deal with this, they're not going to care or take care of or support the well-being of the, the normal human. They're going to say, you should be transhuman. Yeah. So that's when I say that I don't think we're well-equipped to handle it. I think the nature of our species and the ability to have this choice creates a, a divide. It's the first time in history that we will have the ability through wealth and choice to oppress. And of course, we had slavery and, and other issues like that. Yeah. Okay, I'm not I'm not minimizing those kind of issues. But this is through through the choice. You know, you didn't choose to be black. You were born black, right? Yeah. Now you're choosing to be transhuman or not, and thus creating this oppressed minority. Got it. We're yeah, not well. It'll be a continuing to regret the haves and the have-nots who can afford these different implants. And to the, but I see it very similarly to some of the barriers that we're seeing in these marginalized communities, where a barrier is getting to work, having a car, having a vehicle. Like these are internet privileges access. that yeah. we don't even realize. Ryan, I have right. to ask you though. I mean, you you talked about the future of work. That's 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 my everyday job, right? Talking about the future of workforce planning, buying, renting, growing, and botting talent. We're kind of seeing um, a massive need, right? We're seeing this evolutionary shift. You've mentioned the fourth industrial revolution, where it's more transitioning to that true knowledge-based, skills-based environments. Um, but we also have a people problem. 70% of child labor in the United States is up since 2018. Um, we see that there's two jobs for every available candidate today. And it's a numbers problem that is shared across all industries. Everybody's hiring right now. <laughs> so I see the opportunity to leverage a tool to potentially reduce the amount of people required to do certain positions and suit or certain work. The opportunity also holds itself because a majority of why people don't feel like they have purpose or passion for their positions is a majority of their time is spent on administrative tactical work. What, where is that comfortable medium, right? You say, we only really look at the downside of it. I do see some upside potential, especially with the mental health crisis that we have going on, the human connection crisis, um, social isolation is like smoking 16 cigarettes a day. There are some warning signs on the human side already. But to your point, businesses, if I can have a computer show up on time, it doesn't take off, it doesn't take breaks, I can kick it, I can talk bad to it and it costs me a quarter of what a person costs, that is going to be a very easy decision by a lot of business leaders because that is what they've been traditionally taught to think from your financial perspective. But the risk component, where is that balance? Where is the medium? Do you believe that it exists? Is it? it, it and I agree with you. I don't think it's all one way or all the other. Um, but what, in your best estimation from what you know and what you do professionally now, where, where is that balance? Where is that line? Um, how can we use this to really improve the lives of individuals? So at the same time, really helping businesses 
continue to thrive in the new normal? I don't think we know where the line is, and I don't think anyone knows. And I think the nature of, of markets is that we're going to oscillate around it. So yeah. here's what I mean by that. Um, we're going to overshoot the right amount of humans in the workforce. And, and today we have maybe, you know, not enough machines, because as you mentioned, there's there's jobs to fill, there's things to be done, okay? So let's characterize that as not enough machines if there's jobs to be filled and people not filling it. Mm-hmm. We're going to scream past that where yeah. we're going to automate too many things. Yeah. And the reason I say that is I'm a 51-year-old unabashed capitalist, okay? And capitalism dictates exactly what you said, which is machines taking over all of these components where they can are more efficient, more profitable. So companies are, right now, they are only incentivized one way, which is to replace, eventually replace humans with machines everywhere they can. Now, let me comment on that as well. We have reached a point where I would argue, if we look at things only as a single human task, not, not a human that does multiple tasks, Correct. okay? Because machines are very bad at that. Correct. A machine can't, can't um, uh, you know, act like a car and then go be a large language model. We haven't built our machines like that. We build two machines for that, okay? Whereas a human could do both of those things, right? They could write a report and they could drive a vehicle, okay? But in the context of a single human task, we've probably reached the place now where the vast majority of single human tasks can be replaced by a machine. When we combine artificial intelligence and algorithms with the autonomous, uh, with the success we're having in autonomous robotics and machinery, when you combine those two things, every human task can be broken down into a combination of what I call the brain, AI and algorithmic systems, and the dexterity, right? It's my arms, it's my feet, it's my eyes, it's my speaking, right? If I'm a professor, it's mostly brain, but I still got to stand there, teach, write on the whiteboard and so on. If I'm a ditch digger, I probably don't have to think too much, but I have to have the muscle to, to do the digging, right? Our power with machines to replicate all of those human tasks is now very robust. So if you play that out, essentially those who can choose how to allocate capital should choose the more efficient solution over time, which will be to choose machines for most jobs. So I genuinely worry about technological unemployment for two reasons. One, capitalism, unless we change that that cost-benefit metric, okay? (laughs) Unless we change how they measure, you know, if you, you, you could say something like, look, if you employ only uh, machines, you're going to pay a government tax of 75%. Well, now you've changed that equation, right? right? So so unless we change that equation, capitalism must choose more and more and more and more machines, okay? Um, that's one side of the equation. And then the other side of the equation is, unfortunately, I see a younger generation that actually does not have the same kind of work ethic that previous generations share. And here's what I worry about with that. Um, I think there's an insufficient appreciation of the value of participating in your own survival. Yeah. What I mean by that is I think there is something about your identity, who you are and your self-worth when you know that you're out there working. You may not love the work. You may not like the work at all. 
but the fact that you're getting paid enough to come home and keep the roof over your, your children's uh, heads and put food on the table, that generates self-worth. And I'm afraid that we're breaking that connection. And as a result, we as humans may allow the shift to machines because we're like, oh, it'll be great. The machines will do all the work and I'll just receive a government payout or whatever it is. To, Andrew Yang, you know, wasn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. so um, I'm worried actually on both of those fronts. Yeah. And I think we will overshoot, probably not in my generation, but maybe in my kids. And then we've got to figure out or find that balance because I don't think we're going to like who we are if 60 or 70% of us aren't working. Yeah. Socially, we've been conditioned, though. I mean, I hear work ethic all the time. I think it's a misalignment of strengths and purpose and and, and values or position that's placating more towards our weakness. But I mean, that's I've heard that about millennials since I've entered the workforce that we're we're lazy, we're entitled. I mean, I work probably more than most people that are even in their 50s and 60s, to be honest, right? So it's, it's also that same perception, I believe that we talked about at the beginning is that perception, right? But I say I'm still analog, flirting with digital, but this younger generation, Gen Z that grew up with the tablet, almost in their hand is they're one with machine. They're way more comfortable. So I think it's confusing for that generation when they do come into a business and it's archaic in process. I think it's confusing because it's like, I could be way more productive if, and I think it's, it is unfortunately what I've seen throughout my career, Ryan, was the lack of prioritization of soft costs in that capitalistic model. Finance did not care if I said, I have this technology that will save your team 20 hours worth of work. They said, great, that's awesome. However, that's an additional expense. We're going to just keep doing what we're doing. Now, that's in just my area. Now, if I multiply that across the country, we haven't been advancing and investing in digital transformation at the same rate because we almost didn't pick our heads up to see the numbers problem that we're walking into now with the, the as that baby boomer generation kind of works its way through. Um, so it is fascinating. I, I think there's a lot, a lot at play, but uh, again, I'm fearful more for what we said is like, if profits are the number one priority, I can tell you that people will end up at the end of that other stick <laughs> real quick. Um, and Andrew Yang, like I was saying earlier, it wasn't that crazy. Um, but I agree with you. I think the people that are willing to invest in their own development personally um, on their own uh, and continue to step outside that comfort zone to learn new skills. I just found it fascinating. The most emerging skills, I think, was like creative thinking and solution finding and problem solving were like the top three skills that are going to be desired. I think we're already seeing where those other tasks or other skills that were previously required for those repetitive duties aren't going to be as needed, but other things will be needed as we continue to evolve. Right. I could do this all day. I, this is the most open-ended conversation I think we've ever had. And I love the word oscillate, Ryan. You, you, you busted that out a little bit ago. Freaking love that word. Um, I, I guess my question to you, Ryan, so you're, I just love talking to smart people for one. I, this, just, <laughs> this just gets me going, man. Like my rest of my, usually I'm a little tired. I'm like, all right, here's our podcast again. And it's like, I get so reinvigorated. Like I'm back, man. Every time I talk to someone way smarter than me, especially about something that I, you know, I, I, I saw some like songs being written by AI. I saw a painting, an award, a painting that got, you know, done by AI. 
to you, Ryan. So, so that that's fascinating to me. That's like blew me away. Okay, you're probably like, well, duh, dude. That's what it can do. What do I? What don't I know about it? Like, what's the most fascinating? I guess thing AI could do that Tyler White has no idea about. What 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 is that? Can, can you name a couple for me? Uh, yeah, I can name a couple. Yeah. So let's take let's take Chat GPT. Um, okay. If you were an attorney and you asked it to uh, essentially make a case study and you presented it to the judge. If you didn't check your work, you just handed in, and this has already happened to an attorney of 30 years, you just handed in a whole bunch of sources written by ChatGPT that don't actually exist. And you've now broken a code of conduct and can be sanctioned by the court and or disbarred if you did it again. So the one of the first things that I would say is, um, we all suffer from something called automation bias. We assume too much. It's, it's an over-reliance on these technologies without sufficient understanding. And often we will choose the technology over humans who are coming along and saying, wait a minute, you know, you should check that or understand what it is. So we all suffer from human uh, automation bias. Now, the work that For Humanity does is focused on institutional solutions. We're, we're plugging into governments and regulators. We're trying to create an infrastructure of trust with governance, oversight, and accountability on how these tools are built and operated. That's kind of an institutional thing. But the one place that we are looking and considering to try to go retail, try to reach moms and pops, is this idea of automation bias because they suffer from it too. Now, one of the challenges of automation bias is when do I trust my machines completely? Yeah. You today, the two of you, don't get into an elevator and go, not sure how this thing's going to work. I'm not sure <laughs> if it's going to get me to my floor, and I'm not sure if I'm going to fall to my death. We don't wonder about those things because we trust the machine to do what it's going to do, rightfully so. Same with our calculator. When we plug something into the calculator, we're not wondering how did it do that? Did it do it the right way? Did it, you know, is it going to produce? Okay, so you do want to reach a place where you understand the tool and you know when to trust it, okay? The AIs and, and products that we're putting out today are nowhere near that level of accuracy. There was this, this uh, doctor you know, right after ChatGPT came out and he, he, he went viral for not the right reasons. And he got on there and he said, you know, all, and he's writing to all his friends. He's like, here's the, the great, you know, great advice today. When you need to file a claim with the insurer for things that they're not covering in terms of diagnostics, here's this new tool, ChatGPT, and it will write the letter for you to the insurance company. And he gets on there and he shows people how he writes the letter and he basically gets ready to fire it off. And again, all the sources in it were non-existent and he totally embarrassed himself, right? So knowing that these tools are far from perfect mm -hmm. is key and critical because you need to know how and when to use them, but also what kind of human oversight, human interaction to put it with or to improve your own process in using the system with, mm -hmm. with what we would call prompt engineering and multiple prompts until we get something that we know that works and, and now we're ready to make it uh, effective. So that's one thing that, that you want to think about. But here's another one. All of these tools, every AI that's out there today is all built on historical data. Yeah. 
Therefore, the conclusions it reaches about you basically says you are your history. Yeah. Think of think of your Netflix. When you get on your Netflix, it shows you here's some movies we're going to suggest because of what you've watched before. Yeah. Guess what? You're in a different mood today, mm-hmm. or worse. This thing judges you on who you were in your past, and I was a bad person in my past. But you know what? Today, I changed. Mm-hmm. Hope, redemption, the right and ability to change. These are some of the most beautiful characteristics in our humanity. And these machines are utterly devoid of those concepts and, in fact, work against them. Mm-hmm. So when you want to talk about being for humanity, these are key and critical concepts embedded in the tools that we use that do not celebrate human humanity, our humanness, and also a full and holistic picture of each next decision, each next choice, because they are incapable of doing so. Mm-hmm. And having that understanding is key and critical as we use these tools. Kevin, it kind of gets back to something you said, which is we need to know what the tool's good at. What does it do? But what are its limitations Mm -hmm. so that we can use the tool effectively? Does that make sense? It does because, I mean, I think of a new board game that I play with somebody. I need to know the rules. If I'm playing against somebody that knows the rules and I don't and they win, I'm dejected, right? I I reject to accept that truth that you won. It was because you knew the rules and I didn't. And I, and there's, it it seems like you're touching on that output obsession that most organizations, most individuals, most businesses today are focused on outputs. Um, I have seen time and time again, their inability to clearly identify whether you call them key performance indicators, KPIs, whatever term, I call those just inputs, drive those necessary outputs. And it seems like in that output obsession that we have that I will be trust everything that comes out of this system because all I'm actually after is the output itself. Doesn't matter if it's accurate, doesn't matter if it's right. It's just the output, it's the task, it's done. Um, Is there a reverse opportunity, right? Because I I totally get machine lacks emotion. Emotion is that social fabric connection that weaves us all together. I think it's something that we pushed away from in the business world. And we saw people start to, or definitely divided your old IBMers. They're, they really didn't talk about their professional and personal lives succinctly together. You almost severance like HBO, you separated the two and your brain was able to separate work and work and home. Um, it was almost that conditioning, right? Uh, that we, that we all experienced. For machines, and we talk about unconscious bias, we talk about the challenges with diversity, equity, inclusion, and the sense of belonging, and and we see that performance is really more of an emotional state within a lot of businesses, as well as promotional opportunities. It's not always going to the best, highest performers, it's going to the people that have built social relationships sometimes and are the yes people. Is there an opportunity to remove some of the humanistic traits to reduce those biases and to actually work towards solutions to leverage machines ability to not factor emotion into decision-making. There is, there should be, and in times there shouldn't be. Exactly. So we don't want to reduce every decision to 
to being a machine probability. That's not what our lives are about, okay? We're not weighing the probabilistic nature of every decision we do. Machines will. So there's certain aspects of our lives that 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 shouldn't be governed by machines. And I'll give you an example of a, of a funny technology that it was created to kind of point this out. They basically uh, created this uh, tag emoji so that when, let's say, you and I, Kevin, have this conversation, and I'm like, "Gosh, he's he's a little pedantic and he kind of carries on too long," so I'm going to kind of give him a three. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to start to calculate and basically say, don't go to these places because you might run into Kevin and you don't want to have those conversations again. Oh, they did it as a funny experiment to kind of show, you know, there's certain elements of our humanity that we don't want to, um, you know, kind of put in the machine realm. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when we when we encounter bias in machines because of its statistical nature, because we're able to measure it and examine it, we may be able to mitigate bias more. But here's the problem. The way these tools are being built, they're being built with a lot of embedded bias that already existed in our society that we essentially codified into the machines. Because they're designing the tools. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Well, designing the tools, but they're also using our data. I'll give you an example. Chat GPT is Western. It's male. Okay. Just two things right off the bat. It's 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 got a white bias to it, simply because those things, Western, white, and male, are more of the internet, and they basically scoured portions of the internet through web scraping to train the model. Hmm. So now the, this model and the output has this bias in there. It uses genderized language. It that. uses yeah. It uses younger versus older language. It uses male versus female language. It uses uh, racial language. Now, they're putting in guardrails around this, but this is now what For Humanity does. And this gets me to the to the last point. We have to remember that these are tools. Yes. So what For Humanity is trying to establish is a way to build governance, oversight, and accountability, to get into the rules of how these systems are run, where we are considering ethical applications mitigating bias, ensuring data privacy, building trust, and doing this in a cyber secure way. So those are the five core risks that For Humanity aims to mitigate. And we write very specific implementable rules on how to do all this that essentially brings the human into control and governance and oversight of these tools, ensuring that they're more ethical. Mm-hmm. ensuring that we mitigate as much. Now, when we talk about bias, we never talk about eliminating bias. It's just, it's just a statistical Reduction. impossibility. Yeah. Mathematically, you cannot get rid of bias. But we want to have an intent to regularly mitigate bias and ensure yeah. fairer and fairer outcomes for people, right? But what we want to do is create procedures. Some of these procedures are done by machines. Mm-hmm. Some of these procedures are done by humans. And it's in a place where it's the right entity to do each of these two things, knowing our roles in the equation. Um, and you're just ahead of the government because I'm sure, I mean, like anything, the government kind of lacks behind. Social, you mentioned social media for your children growing up. I mean, they went unregulated for how long? And then people started to realize what data they were collecting, how much data and what they knew about you. All right, Ryan, well, I was thinking, what, I know the 90s were great and all. 
But would you have rather been born when you were born or would you have rather been born last week? When I was born. When you were born. Okay. Um, un right. un unfortunately, unfortunately um, from a human well-being perspective, I actually think we've peaked. Um, I think there will be plenty of people who will thrive in the coming years, uh, decades, uh, but I think that group will shrink. And I think we're going to find that the average well-being, and this is hard to measure, this is just, it's purely an opinion, but I think the average well-being of humanity is actually going to decrease, uh, partly because of this disparity, this inequality of and wealth, but I think it's also going to become knowledge. See, we've we've done something that's that's um, really dangerous. What we've done is we we entered the age of information. So over the last twenty to thirty years, we've built and and made it so basically all information is accessible, and that's amazing. Okay. But now what we're doing with large language models like ChatGPT is we're taking the pool of information and we're growing it exponentially. So we're going to take information, but we're going to flood in lots more information. And with lots more information comes misinformation and disinformation. Mm. And here's the problem. Information is not the end game. Knowledge is better than information. And wisdom is better than knowledge. Knowledge basically says I can take your information and I can turn it into something effective. I can turn it into something useful. That's knowledge. The problem with knowledge is knowledge isn't considerate enough of its whole environment. So I might make some good choices, but I had these really huge negative impacts over here that weren't even part of my equation. Mm -hmm. Wisdom takes knowledge and examines it in terms of total well-being, okay? But here's the problem. Getting to knowledge and wisdom means you have to uncover or sift through information. Mm -hmm. And as we increase information, including misinformation and disinformation, it becomes harder to identify knowledge and wisdom. And in doing that, we are basically separating less and less people who are going to be able to do knowledge and wisdom. And those will be the haves. And we will increase the have-nots. And that gives me concern. Yeah. Gives me concern for my boys. Yeah. Well, same here. Dad, dad of a two-year-old and Tyler's got a, a daughter of uh, what? How old is she now, Ty? Six months, five days. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I, I like the precision. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But um, I just want to say thank you, Ryan. My pleasure. It's been uh, fun to be here. You made it very easy for me. I appreciate that very much. And happy to come back if you want to, you know, get more precise in a particular category. Yeah. Or